All things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. If your heart is pure, then everything about you is going to be pure in the sense that you know God. You know what is holy and what is not. How are you made pure? How can we purify our heart? The Bible says nobody can purify their own heart. We purify our hearts by simply receiving Christ. Who said if you cleanse the inside of the cup, it will overflow and cleanse the outside also, right? He was talking about the heart. David said, create in me a clean heart, O God. It has to be God. Only God can cleanse our heart. Religion, that just surface cleanses a person's life. Just like the whitewashed tombs in uh, Jesus' day, which he likened to the Pharisees. That's what the Pharisees were. They were whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they looked all clean and white and holy. Inside, they were full of hypocrisy and defilement and so on. That's religion. Religion can only surface cleanse a person's life and give people the illusion that they're holy. Only Christianity, only Jesus Christ can actually come into a heart, cleanse that heart by his blood, and make you pure in the inside, and that purity that works its way outwardly. But those are, that are defiled, uh, Paul said to Titus, and they're defiled because their hearts have not been cleansed by the blood of Christ. To them, they're unbelieving. Nothing is pure, because inside and out, they're just defiled. But the idea is that we are a chaste virgin because of what Jesus did. And Jude said, Now unto him who was able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless, to present you pure, to present you holy before his presence with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So look, we are made righteous through him. We are made his pure, chaste bride through his blood. Now, once we receive Christ's righteousness positionally, of course, that heart for him, that righteousness, that holiness, begins to work its way out into our lives. And our lives begin to change dramatically. Paul said in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, right? Not the result of your works, lest any should boast. That's positional righteousness. But then he goes on in verse 10 to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what do we see here? We see that this bride of Christ, in verse 8, she is clothed with what? Well, some say with the righteousness of Christ. Well, she's certainly clothed with that. That's how she became his bride. But the Greek here is plural. The righteousnesses, or that's why they've translated the righteous acts. Because this is also a part of the beauty of the church. That having become a part of his body, having become his bride through our faith in him, and he has sent his spirit to live in us, and we are connected to him now. And we begin to live a whole different kind of life where we are now living for his glory and not our own. Those righteous acts are also what adorns this bride. And in fact, becomes some of the crowns that we will lay at his feet when we see him. I believe it also dovetails with what Jesus said, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my what is with me? Rewards. I think those rewards are the righteous acts of the saints which God rewards us for. I mean, here's the thing, okay? He does it all. What do you have that you did not receive? Paul said. If you have indeed received it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? 
What do you have that God hasn't given you? But the, the kicker is, even though God's given me everything and allows me to serve him and gives me the power to serve him and the heart to serve him and the opportunities to serve him, when I stand before him, he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's a mind blower. I mean, before I got saved, anything I did in the way of religion or helping the poor or feeding the hungry, they were like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Why? Because nothing we do apart from Christ is looked upon with anything in the eyes of God. It's all rejected. But once I clothe myself in the righteousness, righteous robes of Christ by faith, now I begin a life of service and God says, now that's good because you're doing it as unto me. You're not trying to earn my righteousness. You're not trying to buy my eternal life. You realize it's a gift and everything you do is done out of a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving. Now I recognize that. Now I will reward you for that. And someday, along with the robes of righteousness, which I have clothed you in through my son's blood, I'm going to adorn you with all the beautiful things that you've done for me. And that's going to be, in part, the glory of eternity, to see the things that we have done for him that has been our joy to do. And so we are going to be clothed in not just the robes of righteousness, but in the righteous acts of the saints. Well, there's so much more here, guys, that we could look at. It, it, you know, And people read this and they just gloss over it. They don't realize what is being said here and how that all of human history has been moving towards this climax. Jesus returned, marrying his church, and together we sit on his throne, reigning with him throughout eternity. That, that's the culmination of human history history. And we must not gloss over it. In these verses, we see the Lamb, which is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. We see the bride is mentioned, which is the church in verse 7. It says, his wife has made herself ready. But in verse 9, we read, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, the question is, who are these? All right, we have the bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the bride spoken of, the church. Who are these guests? Some say, well, it's the church. Well, you would hardly say that a bride is invited to her own wedding. I mean, the bride and groom invite the guests, right? So there's a distinction here. Who are these guests? I mean, you got the Lord, you got the church, but who are the guests that are invited to the wedding feast? Well, very simply, they're made up, first of all, of the Old Testament patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We know that, that in the Gospels um, that Jesus talked about them being a part of this feast and all. And in fact, in Luke chapter 13, verse 28, it broadens it to include all the Old Testament prophets. We will see, no doubt, in this group of guests, all the great Heroes of faith talked about in Hebrews chapter 11. John the Baptist will no doubt be one of the guests. Jesus said he was the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets and in fact called John specifically the friend of the bridegroom, which is a term in our vernacular we would say best man. I think also added to this group is going to be all the tribulation saints. First of all, those that died during the tribulation period, those that were martyred by the Antichrist, they will come back in their glorified bodies as guests of this great wedding feast. And 
those tribulation saints that were alive on the earth when the Lord returns, they will be allowed to enter into this supper. And so it's important to understand that the marriage of the Lamb takes place in heaven. But the marriage supper is going to take place on earth. Now, we studied this last week. So if you're interested in traditional marriage customs of the Jewish people, we spent a lot of time last week developing that because it so relates to our marriage to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we spent some extra time in the first eight or nine verses looking at these marriage customs, and we said that you have the actual marriage ceremony, and then you have the marriage supper. So the marriage ceremony takes place in heaven. The marriage supper takes place on the earth. In fact, J. Vernon McGee, commentator, said, the marriage supper is evidently the millennial kingdom. You talk about a long supper. This is going to be a long one. At the end of the millennium, the church is still seen as a bride. Imagine a honeymoon which lasts a thousand years. Yet that is only the beginning. What joy, what ecstasy. The angel puts God's seal on this scene. These are the true words of God, end quote. So it's going to be quite a time, quite a celebration. In verse 10, John said, And I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, John, I think John knew better than this, but he was no doubt overwhelmed with the excitement and emotion of the moment. And he just forgets himself and he falls at the feet of this angel that's showing him all this and begins to worship this angel. And the angel's horrified. He says, don't do that. I'm your fellow servant. You worship God. Hey, I think we would all say that angels are pretty powerful, glorious beings. But they're still created beings. And as such, they are our fellow servants and not worthy of worship. There's only one person in the universe that's worthy of worship, and that is God himself. Now, this is in contrast, of course, to Jesus' ministry, because throughout Jesus' ministry, there were several people that actually worshipped him. We know, you don't have to turn to these, but Luke uh, chapter 5, verse 8, when um, Simon had been fishing all night along with uh, Andrew and I think James and John, and they caught nothing. And Jesus, you know, used their boat to preach a, a, a quick message to the crowd. And then he said, launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Peter did reluctantly, because after all, he's the fisherman. You're the carpenter. I know how to fish. We've caught nothing. You don't fish in the daytime. You fish in the nighttime in the shallow waters, not in the daytime in the deep water, that kind of thing, you know. So, Lord, you're mistaken, but at your command, I'll let down the net. Jesus let down the nets, but he limited them. But he, he did obey partly. And the nets were immediately so filled with fish that they were beginning to break. And when they pulled them to shore, Peter fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So he worships the Lord here and confesses to him his sins. Well, you remember Thomas. When Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to the disciples in the upper room that first resurrection Sunday evening, Thomas wasn't there. When he finally comes back, Jesus is gone and the other disciples are excited. We've seen the Lord. He was right here. Thomas said, I won't believe unless I can see him with my own eyes and put my fingers into the nail prints in his hand and the spear wound in his side. And so the next week, of course, Jesus appears again and Thomas was in the room. And Jesus said, all right, Thomas, come here, son. Go ahead and put your you know fingers in the nail prints in my hands and the spirit wound in my side. And don't be unbelieving, but be believing. 
And Thomas responds with that classic response of worship. He said, my Lord and my God. And of course, one more, there's others uh, we could talk about, but remember when the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee and the big storm came out, Jesus was not with them. He had gone up to a mountain to pray, but it was Passover time, which meant full moon. And the storm came on the Sea of Galilee suddenly, which they do in that part of the world. But it was not a rainstorm with clouds and all, it was a windstorm. And the moon was shining bright, full moon. Jesus was watching the whole thing from where he was on the mountaintop, praying for them, it says. And they struggled for about eight hours, trying to cross the Sea of Galilee, which he had commanded them to do. Finally, I think they had given up all hope in the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 a.m. and 6. He comes walking to them out on the water. Now, they thought he was a ghost. He says, don't be afraid, it's me. Peter said, well, if it's really you, Lord, let me walk out into the water and come to you. Jesus said, well, come on. So Peter gets out of the boat and begins to walk and on the water, and for a while he does the miraculous. Must have been a pretty neat feeling to walk on water, right? Suddenly it dawns on him, hey, I'm walking on water. I, I, I can't walk on water. <laughs> he sees the waves and everything. He's looking down, and suddenly he panics, and he takes his eyes off of Jesus and begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. And the Lord reaches out and grabs his hand and says, why did you doubt? You know, and they get into the boat. And immediately he was at the shore. And it says in Matthew 14, verse 33, Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, in all these examples of worship that people gave to Jesus, not once did he say, Oh, don't do that. I'm just an angel. Worship God. See, if you listen to the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll tell you that Jesus Christ is not God Almighty. He is a lesser God. He is the angel, uh, Archangel Michael, or he is an angel like Lucifer, who was just his brother. And there are probably other groups and cults that will say that Jesus Christ was just an angel, very powerful, angelic being. But see, true angels never accept worship. We see that throughout Scripture. The two or three times where John or somebody falls down to worship an angel, they are an angel of God, they are horrified and they say, do not do that. We are your fellow servants. You worship God. Jesus didn't say that. He accepted the worship. Why? Because he is God. He is God. He's not a, an angel. He is more than an angel. He is the creator of the angels. He is God incarnate. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, it says, But when he again brings the firstborn, speaking of God bringing his son Jesus into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. So all the angels of God worship the son because he is God incarnate. And then the angel declares at the end of verse 10, For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This means that the true purpose of prophecy is to bear testimony to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, that's the purpose of the entire Bible. Jesus said, the volume of the book, it is written of me. He told the Pharisees, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but it is they that testify of me. Jesus Christ, the whole Bible, in some way, is testifying of Jesus Christ in prophetic utterances and uh, pictures and types and, and, and even things like feast days. And, and er, it all points to Jesus, but especially prophecy. 333 of his first coming, over 500 of his second coming. 
I think we would all say that the bulk of the prophecies in the scriptures deal with Christ. In fact, as the angel said, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. One author said this, and I quote, Some people think that the purpose of prophecy is to open a window on the future. But no, the spirit and essence of prophecy is to bear witness to Jesus. He is the central figure of all scripture and of all history. We are not to focus our attention on future events, but on the one who will bring them to pass. Our focus of worship is the Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. And that is absolutely true. I know that prophecy is important, and we, you know, at Calvary Chapel have kind of cut our spiritual teeth on prophecy in many respects. We love it. We know that it's something that reminds us of the nearness of Christ's return. But you know what? It's not about just knowing what's going to happen in the future because it gives us a little edge on other Christians who are ignorant of these things. It's not to puff our intellect up. It's to bring us to our knees in the recognition that his coming is near, even at the door. And that, you know what, is my life ready? Am I, am I ready to meet him? You know, I mean, it's all about him. And prophecy should be reminding me how soon he is coming. You know, am I living for him? Am I living full out for him? You know, I mean, am, am I worshiping him? Am I loving him? Because he's coming soon. I'm going to stand before him and see him as he is. And, and I want to be ready when that happens. So the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Verse 11, John said, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. The door of heaven is opened twice in the book of Revelation. The first time it was opened, it was opened in chapter 4, verse 1. And that was as an entrance for the church that was raptured. In other words, God opens the door of heaven in chapter 4, verse 1, to allow the church to enter into heaven after they have been raptured off the earth. But here in chapter 19, the door is opened a second time. This time is to allow the church to exit heaven with her bridegroom, as he is coming now to the earth to establish his kingdom. And as we've already said last week, the church disappears off the earth, starting in chapter 4, verse 1, and doesn't reappear on the earth until chapter 19, verse 14, when she appears with her husband, Jesus Christ, as he comes. But here, folks, we have the climax of redemptive history the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. This will finally be God's response to all the Christians that have ever prayed, thy will be done on earth, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. Right now, God's will is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Because of man's rebellion. There is a large segment of mankind that refuses to bow the knee to Christ. Now, they will someday. As the Bible says, someday every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God. Of course, uh, if you wait until you stand before him in, in heaven on the day of judgment to bow the knee, you've waited too long. But there is coming a day when Jesus is going to return, of course, and he is going to establish his kingdom. And only those on the earth, th those on the earth will be those who desire to obey him. And as we're going to see, must obey him but it's a day that we are longing for a day when the kingdom comes and god's will is done upon the earth even as it is in heaven where there's not going to be crime there's not going to be injustice or evil 
it's not going to be tolerated by the Lord, as we're going to see in a moment. And we look forward to that day. You know, it may interest you to know that next to the subject of faith, there is no other subject in the Bible that is mentioned more times in the second coming. Do you realize that? The second coming is mentioned 1,845 times in the Bible. One out of every 30 verses mentions it. Seven out of ten chapters in the New Testament talk about it. For every one time the first coming is mentioned in the Bible, the second coming is mentioned eight times. And yet so many churches and Christians today have stopped talking about it, stopped looking for it. I think in part, to a large degree, it's because the church in America has become so wrapped in the cares of this life, so busy laying up for themselves treasures on the earth, that honestly, if they would be candid, a lot of Christians would tell you that they were kind of hoping that Jesus wouldn't come back for another thousand years, or at least not in their lifetime. Why? Because they got it pretty good right now. You know, they got it pretty good. They're, they're really enjoying life. I mean, they've got plenty of food. They, they live in a nice house, drive a nice car. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for